So we turn in God's word this evening to the book of Job, Job chapter 1, reading the entirety of that chapter. Job chapter 1, give your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the course of the feast had run, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when, the son, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in, in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. 
as for the reading of God's word, may he bless it. Job. So we all know about this man and his book. In fact, Job is one of the more famous figures in history, besides being a significant person in the history of Christianity and Judaism. Job also shows up in the Quran as a prophet. Even in the 20th century, Job has been the subject of numerous books, poems, musical compositions, movies, and art. Our modern world has not forgotten about this ancient man, but actually has renewed an interest in him. And yet, despite the widespread familiarity, there seems to be an equally common confusion about what his book means. Does his book explain why bad things happen to good people? Is it a vindication of God's good justice amid the existence of evil? Does it show how suffering can be redemptive or how all suffering is unjust and oppressive? Scholars have debated if Job was really upright or if he deserved what he got. Is his book a statement of enduring faith or a daring rebellion against God? How does the opening prose relate to all the poetry? What did Job's friends really say? And all the topics of debate go on and on. Well, as we begin our trek through this holy book of God's inspired word, it is best for us to remember James's commendation of Job as being patient and steadfast. Thus, the answers to these questions and many more will build us up in grace. But by being patient readers and students of this glorious and mysterious book called Job. There was a man. So opens our story with just a guy, which gives us the impression that he is average. He's your everyday man, just like you and I. In fact, this intro feels a bit like a fable or a parable. Is this guy merely a fictional persona for teaching purposes? Well, in the New Testament, James refers to Job as a man of history. Ezekiel actually places Job next to Noah as a real person of outstanding piety. Thus, we shouldn't doubt that this man was a flesh-and-blood human. Next, we are informed that he lived in the land of Uz, which is a more general and large area. Now, from the point of view of the promised land, Uz is the land east of the River Jordan. And yet, Uz can extend from Edom, down south, all the way to Aram in the far north. Now, where within this large swath of geography he lived, we're not able to be more specific. But this does identify this man as being non-Israelite. He's not a Hebrew, but a Gentile. Next, we learn the man's name, Job, which has the feeling of an old-fashioned name maybe like Bertha or Alfred for us. That is, in the second millennium B.C., the name Job is frequently attested in Amorite, Akkadian, Assyrian, and Ugaritic documents. And yet it fell out of use in the first millennium B.C. This gives us the impression that Job lived well before David and the kingdom of Israel in Jerusalem. Now, as for the meaning of his name, in its archaic etymology, Job means 
Where is Father? This is a cry of despair. Where is my divine Father, God? Where is your heavenly Father when you need him? Which is a fitting name for Job's lamenting. Yet in Hebrew, this etymology would not likely be known. Rather, in Hebrew, Job means one who is enemied, that he's treated like an enemy, alienated, disinherited. And this meaning also fits up the story. Either way, we are next informed about his moral character, which is standout to say the least. Job is blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. Job is above reproach in all matters and aspects of life. He always does what is lawful, good, and virtuous. He hates sin and evil, and he avoids it consistently and persistently. Job is the man who did no wrong, and his moral polish flows with all integrity and sincerity from his heart as he fears the Lord. To fear God includes faithful and loving devotion to the Lord as the only God of heaven and earth. Now, Job is not sinless. Later on, he will confess that the common corruption of Adam infects him, too. But Job is about as perfect as a man you can get for a fallen human. His faith, his piety, and morality is stunning, polished gold without a smudge. His life, in fact, matches his perfect character. He had seven sons and three daughters. The perfect seven plus the superlative three equals the ten of abundant completion. So also his wealth soars into the multiples of ten. 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels are 10,000 riches, a myriad of wealth. So 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys is a thousand more wealth and and, and, and affluence. He also has so many servants, they're not even counted. In fact, this list of his, uh, of his uh, wealth echoes that of Genesis 26 to remind us of Isaac. In fact, so handsome is Job in po- prosperity and character, it says he's the greatest man of the East. He is number one in his fortune, in his uprightness, in honor, and in wisdom. For the people of the East were renowned for their wisdom and scholarship. They were the smartest and best educated. And Job is the wisest of the wise. He has the most PhDs. And we run into, and here we run into the retribution principle, which, as we will see, is a persistent theme and topic of the book. Now, the retribution principle says God rewards obedience and he punishes disobedience. Every person receives as they deserve. And Job is the front model, front cover model for the retribution principle working perfectly. His supreme goodness enjoys in superlative blessings and riches. And if your skepticism raises its hand, saying that wealth doesn't equal happiness, well, the text answers your doubts. Note it was the custom of his sons to hold regular feasts. 
That is, each boy had his own set day. Now, this might have been the boy's birthday or just other scheduled times. Now, these parties were not every day, but they were regular throughout the year, maybe once or twice or three times a year per son. But all the boys would travel to the mansion of one of the sons, and they would invite all their sisters. Then they would party and feast together, which is an image of family bliss. All these brothers and sisters loved hanging out together. With ten kids, you would expect there to be some no shortage of issues and infighting. But not Job's family. His kids were siblings and best friends. And again, we might assume that all this feasting just paints the kiddos as spoiled rich kids addicted to partying. But the text gives no hint of licentiousness. Rather, this is pure joy, properly enjoyed before God. And to ensure this, Job is father and priest to his family. At each party, Job would send for his kids, consecrate them, and offer sacrifice for each girl and boy. No favoritism, equal love for all. He would gather them together for family worship, and he offered sacrifices for any potential sins they may have committed. My my kids may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Indeed, Job is so pure that he's especially concerned about the hearts and the souls of his children. He offers atonement for hypothetical sins of the heart. This is so fastidious We feel it's a bit OCD, but such is the perfection and precision of holiness. And so the family feasted together. They worshiped together happily under the priestly intercession of their loving father, Job. In in verse 1, our first impression was that Job was an average Joe. But how wrong was that initial impression Job is anything but average. Instead, he is exceptional in every way. Job is better than us. He was richer, smarter, and more successful than us. His family is happier than ours. And Job is more pious and devoted to God than we are. Quite simply, perfect man, perfect life. And if we're humble enough to put aside our jealousy for a moment, we are beyond impressed. And yet after this amazing earthly introduction to Job, we jump up into heaven. One day, this is some hum-home moment in heaven, when all the sons of God or angels are coming before Yahweh. Pictured like an earthly king, even though Yahweh is all-knowing and omnipresent, his angels go forth to do his bidding and to return with reports. And on this particular day, Satan is among the angels of God. Satan is that ancient foe of God and his people. He comes to the Lord to present charges against the saints. He works towards our destruction and condemnation. Indeed, Satan is the chief mischief maker of the universe. And on this day... He's ready for some mischief. Though it's not Satan who starts the conversation. Yahweh asks, where have you been? 
Satan responds, oh, roaming and pacing back and forth across the earth. Satan gets around. He knows what every, where, about just about everything. And so Yahweh asks his opinion on something. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He is the one and only who is blameless, upright, fearing God, and shunning evil. Basically, Yahweh brags about Job. He confirms what the narrator told us that Job, about Job, that it is reliable and true. Even Yahweh considers Job to be the most pious man in the world. He even calls Job his servant, which is a covenantal term. To be Yahweh's servant is to be his covenant partner, his companion and friend. Job is not a Hebrew, but he belongs to the innermost circle of Yahweh's friends and beloved ones. And so Yahweh brags about his dearly beloved Job. Well, Satan rightly hears this as a challenge, and so he punches back. Indeed, Satan's speech here is sharp, rude, and disrespectful. Note that Satan doesn't use any of the courtly deference or politeness mandated in the heavenly courtroom. Instead, he insolently addresses Yahweh as you, and he slings sharp imperatives at God. The obscene and hostile demeanor of Satan betrays his pervasive wickedness as an enemy. Moreover, Satan directly challenges Yahweh. He attacks him with his words. Does Job Job fear God for nothing? No, Satan means Job fears only for benefits. The Lord has blessed him profusely and protected him from all harm. Take away the blessings and Job will curse God to his face. Basically, Satan says, Job loves God only for his money. Job's love and fear is paid and bought for by blessings. Job is only pious for profit. Remove God's rewards, and Job will have no more interest left in the Lord. Therefore, Satan challenges the Lord. He puts a wager, forth a wager and a test. Erase Job's riches, his fe- and his fear and his love will be replaced with hateful curses. And yet in this provocation, Satan essentially lodges three charges against Yahweh. First, he calls God a liar. Yahweh said, Job feared God. And Satan replies, nope, it's not true fear or love from the heart. Job is merely a fair-weather friend who loves God only for his money. Second, Satan ridicules and scoffs at the retribution principle itself as he colors it as gross economics. God's God-blessing obedience and punishing disobedience isn't about divine justice or holiness. It is just an exchange of goods and services. If you show some love and fear, God will pay you for it. If not, God doesn't pay. Satan calls God a bad Marxist. Third, Satan accuses Yahweh of having failed. 
The Lord's plan was to redeem a people for himself who would love and to be devoted to God for himself alone. True love and fear. But here is Job, the best that there is, and his love is not real. Satan even implies that Yahweh is insecure and needy. Yahweh needs worshipers, and the only way he can get people to love him is to buy them off with his blessings. Yeah, this is what Satan says. These three blasphemies, Satan shoots at Yahweh in his own heavenly throne room. And Satan's legal case against Yahweh is essential for us to record and to remember. For this lays out what the book of Job is about. Many other issues and topics are dealt with in Job, but they are all played out on this background of Satan's challenge against Yahweh. Is his word true? Is God just? Has his grace failed to redeem? This means that the book of Job is first about God. In this book, we are learning about our Lord and our Redeemer. We will see how he defeats Satan and his slanderous charges. And yet, even though this ordeal is between Satan and Yahweh, it all surrounds Job. The performance of Job will determine who wins, God or Satan. In fact, it's rather remarkable that Yahweh puts forth Job as his champion. The Lord doesn't take Satan on directly, but through Job. Indeed, Yahweh instigated the contest by bragging about Job. And he lets Satan have at Job, confident that Job will prevail. In one sense, you could say Yahweh has faith in Job. More accurately, Yahweh is sure in the power of his grace to transform Job into a sincere lover and fearer of him. In this way, as Job passes the test, as he endures, so Yahweh is vindicated and is victorious over the evil one. Job's relationship with God amid suffering and loss is the playing field upon which Yahweh bests Satan. And so, with the contest set, Satan goes forth. The Lord gave all that belongs to Job into the hands of Satan. He has free range, and the hands of Satan are not a good place to be. Therefore, on another day, back down on earth, it is one of the feast days for Job's children. Job has just prayed and sacrificed for his kids in family worship, and now they are partying in the mansion of the firstborn son. When all of a sudden, there's a violent knock on the door. The butler escorts a huffing and puffing messenger into Job's office. You'll never guess what happened. The cows were plowing, the donkeys were grazing. It was a bucolic day when out of nowhere the Sabaean raiders pounced. They took every last animal and killed all their servants. I alone survived. Another out-of-breath runner barges in. The fire of God fell from heaven and torched all the sheep and the shepherds. 
Divine fire cremated them all. I alone escaped. Bang, a third postman runs in. The Chaldeans raided the camels and slaughtered the servants. It was horrible. Blood was everywhere. I alone got away. And then comes a fourth herald, and the worst is safe for last. A massive windstorm blew in from the desert and struck the mansion. The house collapsed like a house of cards, and it crushed all ten of your kids. Job, your girls are gone. Your sons are dead. The horrific nightmare of your kids dying before you happened to Job ten times over in a single moment. The worst day ever. Job's bank account went from $10 million to zero. The animal death alone is too tragic to wrap your head around. 7,000 sheep dead is a crushing loss. And the servants? How many servants did it take to take care of 11,000 animals? Maybe a 1,000 or more? Job has to bury a 1,000 servants, but he's got no money for the funerals. And then... There's his beloved kids. He just worshipped with them this morning, but now they're gone. He just prayed for them, and now they're dead. Talk about an unanswered prayer. How is it possible to process all this? This much loss would freeze you with a broken heart. Job, though, manages to grieve. He tears his garment and shaves his head. He falls on the ground to worship. When everything else is gone, he turns to his Lord. Job runs not to the arms of his wife, but he sits in the brace of his God. And here we see another theme of this book, lamenting and grief. How does faith mourn in the wake of disaster and death? What are the contours of believing sadness amid suffering and deep loss? Well, between Job and his friends, we will be in the schoolhouse of mourning for a long time. But we get our first lesson here. As Job melts into the ground, his faith has the wisdom to go poetic. Yes, God gave us poetry to go places where no more language cannot go. When the pain is inexpressible, when the emotions are too deep, only poetry works. And what a sublime poetic couplet. Naked I came from the womb of my mother, and naked I returned there. Nakedness evinces our helplessness and vulnerability. Nudity exposes that we own nothing, and it all belongs to God. What we have is not our own, but we only hold it in trust until the Lord calls it back. And so the second part of the poem, Yahweh gave and Yahweh took. May the name of Yahweh be blessed. Note here that Job does not cuss at the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans. He's not mad at the servants for not being better guards. Job does not sue the architect for faulty construction. He doesn't even blame the evil one. No, all secondary causes and agents disappear for Job. 
He credits all the death and destruction to the Lord. He knows that the Lord is sovereign over all, and nothing happens apart from his will. Thus, the book of Job is clear throughout. All Job's suffering came from the Lord. Satan may have been the instrument, but the sovereignty of the Lord remains indisputably on the throne. And with Yahweh, having taken it all away from Job, he still blesses the name of Yahweh. Job yet fears Yahweh even in his abject poverty. He loves Yahweh for nothing. On the first day of his testing, Job has bested the evil one, and he did by submitting to the Lord. He overcame Satan by humbly loving the Lord while suffering under the Lord's afflictions. Yahweh's word is true. His redemptive grace has succeeded in Job. Now, this is only the first day of Job's testing. And there are many more days of testing to come for Job. For grief is not a day thing. It's a rest of your life thing. So Job's lamenting faith, we will see, will be varied and complex in the coming days of depression. Nevertheless, this wonderful poem of devotion and love in the throes of death and loss that overcomes Satan is a clear window into the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The nub of Satan's charge against God was that no one would love him for himself. God is only lovable for his money and blessings. And this being the case, that means God's redemption has failed. The Lord can populate heaven only by economics and not by love. Well, there was another day in history that was even worse than this one. It was even more terrible than what struck Job. As the Son of God, Jesus was rich in heaven, and yet his wealth was not taken by some raiders, but Jesus willingly gave it up. He chose to become poor in the incarnation, and by the end, Jesus became nothing. Job still had his torn robe but Jesus hung literally naked on the cross. Job still had a wife and at least four servants, but all of Jesus' friends and family abandoned him on the tree. It is bad to have a friend die, but in another way, it's worse to have that friend hate you and abandon you in life. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed him to the authorities. What a poison dagger to the soul. And then Jesus died. He suffered unto death to become nothing. And through it all, Jesus blessed the name of God. Indeed, Jesus kept loving the Father for nothing. Sure, by his death, Jesus satisfied justice. He paid for our redemption. And so he won his glorification at the right hand. But this was not about economics because it was all done in love. Jesus died because he loved the Father, and Jesus laid down his life because he loved you. 
Satan's charge with it was that God could not redeem sinners like us to truly love him. And yet God did by sending his son to love us unto death. Since God first loved us, because Jesus loved us as sinners, we are made able and free to love him in return, sincerely from the heart, and for no other blessings. In Christ, we feel and know that the love of God transforms us into true lovers of God. No matter the loss, the disaster, or death, that we suffer here and now. Let us then have full confidence in the grace of the Lord to transform us into those who love God through all the dark and glorious days of life, the evil and the good, the loss and the gain. For to have Christ is all we need at the end of the day, and he is everything. Thus, having embraced, been embraced by the love of Christ, may we ever confess the poetry of faith. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Glorious Father, we thank you that you have given us the wisdom of your word. We thank you that in your word we learn about you. And we learn about you and your relationship, your covenant with us, your people, with real people in history who endured the life that we all live in this fallen and cursed world. And so, Lord, we thank you for the lessons of Job. Indeed, it is heartbreaking to see his loss as it reminds us of our own. We thank you that none of us have suffered quite what Job did, but it's not a competition. And we know, Lord, that some of us have suffered severely, and we've all suffered some. And so, Lord, we thank you that in this time of suffering, you give us this picture of heaven a heaven where you show your confidence in your grace to redeem your people, and that as we love you and submit to you even amid affliction, you show that you are conquering the evil one even through us. But Lord, we thank you that this all centers around Christ, he who who conquered the evil one, not with victory and glory, not with sword and, and pomp, by becoming a sacrifice upon the cross for you. Indeed, by losing it all and loving you for nothing, Jesus was victorious. He conquered by his death, and he swallowed up death forever. Lord, we thank you for this comfort. For it is only the grace of Christ, he who became like us in every way but was without sin, who suffered way more than we could ever suffer, and who was victorious, unto death for us. Because of his grace and his mercy, you then make your redemptive grace effective in us so that we might love you for who you are and not just for your blessings. So, Lord, we pray that as we journey through this long book, as you teach us about lamenting and sadness, as you teach us about the struggles of faith, we pray, O Lord, that you would teach us your wisdom. 
your humility and your ability and, and the ability for us to fear you and keep your commandments through all seasons and times of life. Lord, we're ever dependent upon you. Without you, we will fail. But you strengthen us, and your grace is made perfect in our weakness. And so we pray, O Lord, you would continue to perfect your grace and strengthen us so that we might sing forth your praise and so that we might ever speak the words of faith to bless your name at all times. We pray you'd strengthen us as a church. We thank you that you've made us a family of God here and we can bear one another's burdens. Indeed, we thank you that um, you've given us one another, fellow saints, to lean on and to rest on, to confess our sins to and to forgive each other, but also to come alongside as brothers and sisters that we might enter each other's pain and that we might suffer and, and cry and weep with one another as well as rejoice and, and be happy with one another in the good gifts and, and, and providences of life. So we pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us how to be those who comfort well. Teach us how to rejoice well with one another. And teach us how to truly be faithful and consistent to one another, just as you are forever faithful towards us. We lift up the particular needs and concerns. Indeed, O Lord, as you remind us of the burdens of grief and the burdens of loss that we face face and we bear, we pray, O Lord, that you would give us the strength to endure and to bless your name through it all. Be with our children. We pray you'd keep them safe. We thank you for our children of all ages. For those who are in the womb, we pray for our expected mothers, but also for those who are... (coughs) Going off to college and those who are in high school and elementary and those in seminary, we pray for all those who are young and growing and maturing in your grace. May you be with them all their days and may they know you and confess you all the days you give them. Teach us how to be wise and and, and patient parents to raise our children in the grace and admonition of the Lord and to be faithful even when our children are wayward and wander. We pray, O Lord, that you'd be with the grandparents among us. We rejoice in them and their faithfulness and love to us. We thank you for the wisdom that those who are older in the faith can pass on to us. And so may we always be wise and and those who listen to the elders among us. We pray, O Lord, that you would continue to bring visitors and new members. And we pray, O Lord, you'd grow our church. Be with your church abroad. We thank you that we can lift up... um, the, the work of the Great Commission in our prayers and by supporting it with our gifts and by um, just remembering those who are out on the mission field, preaching and teaching and planting churches here throughout this presbytery as home missions and foreign missionaries abroad. Indeed, we pray that you would bless these works of foreign and home missions, that you would be glorified by the sending out of missionaries to preach and teach to spread the gospel promiscuously and to build your church in every other language around this beautiful world that you have given us. We do pray for those who rule over us. Give them wisdom and the ability to rule well, but help us to live upright and dignified lives, even when rulers and our neighbors are wicked and things are chaotic. Teach us how to be stable and firm among turbulent times. Lord, we thank you that you always remind us of heaven. 
For indeed, even as we contemplate suffering and loss and death, even as the cross of Christ is once again set before us, there is no cross with also without the resurrection. Indeed, we thank you that we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and we rejoice in it because Jesus died but is alive forevermore. He has, holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands, and he is the resurrection and the life. And so it is that comfort of the resurrection that is our power and strength to walk before you in this world under the shadow of death until you bring us to glory. So may you hasten that day and keep us faithful to you, just as you are always faithful to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
rejoice that he died for you, that he is the host, and that he's given us each other as a family, and he feeds us together. And so we thank you. Let's come now to faith, humbly relying upon the grace of God, believing in you, and let Christ feed you from heaven by his Holy Spirit to be built up into the most holy thing, now and forever. Glorious Father, we thank you.
This 